What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to yet another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. Ori, it's episode 218, gentlemen. So we're, we're well on our way to 300 already. Almost there. We're starting early. We're starting the countdown again. <laughs> you look very comfortable today. Oh, thanks, man. Put this hoodie on because it's cold again. It is, you know. We had the green up of the grass, mm-hmm. and every time we do, I know there's one more frost coming to kill it. Yeah. It happens every year. Mm-hmm. It's really depressing. It's a really, uh, and really I got a I got a message area. today. It was like frost warning tonight yeah. at 3 a.m. It's like, yeah, be, warn- be, be aware that things are going to freeze. Things and I'm like, freeze. it's almost April now. I know. Ridiculous. It, it was like it, what eighty seven last week. Yeah, it's so, it was great. We so went to the dumb. beach. Yeah, it's crazy. Just yeah. the dumbest state of all time to all live right. in. Who's according to the weather? False, false spring. Yeah, for sure. AJ, what's up, man? I'm cold and hot at the same time. Well, that might be a thyroid condition. We'll have to. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna have to get that checked out, dude. Uh, it's your spring break, right? It is nice. the last one ever. Hanging out with us on spring break, it man. Is, I like yeah, it. You, you will never have a spring break again. You guys think I should be professional and turn my ringer off, or should I just leave? I mean, text messages. I'm sure people Sweet. appreciate the dinging and the buzzing <laughs> throughout the episode. Yeah, that's it. it yeah, is that bittersweet or to be kind of on your last spring break? I'm sure you'll find a way to have a spring break. Don't get me wrong, but technically, your last spring break. You ready spring to, break you is ready a mindset. To, you ready to be? Uh, that's a bad mindset. If you yeah, ask me. I, I have a spring break while I'm at work. It's not the best way to do it. It's a really unproductive week. <laughs> Come on, it's spring break. Spring break, man. I just, yeah, I haven't got anything done, but you don't have to fire if me. If anyone in my job is listening, that was a joke. Yeah, for sure. I've seen him work right through spring break. <laughs> the uh, AJ, you uh, getting ready for rotations? I'm ready to rock and roll. I've got them all stacked up in the beginning, no breaks, all gas. Just ready to get into it. You're starting off uh, out of town, right? Yeah, I'm starting off in Oahu, Hawaii. I'm going to be out there at the Queens Medical Center for a That's month. pretty cool. I'm coming nice. back and rounding with cardiothoracic surgeons on the cardiac ICU in Charlotte. Man, that's a heck of a one to come back to. I provide no useful information to them at all. Oh, Nothing that they for don't sure. already know. Yeah, could you imagine? Oh, I'd like to share something <laughs> that I think about this situation. That were like just everyone looks at you. Please shut up. But they're not as in, you know. They're, they're my brother's in thoracic surgery. It's not. Is he? I didn't know that. Yeah, it's his first cool. job out of school. Really? Oh, that's a heck of a mm-hmm. field to jump into. I know. Mm. Well, tonight we are going to be doing yet another accredited episode. So for those of you who are members of FreeCE.com and you have an unlimited membership or on the new platform, the gold and platinum memberships, then you will have access to any of our episodes that are accredited to get one hour each of continuing education for pharmacists and nurses. So if you are a member, after you listen to this episode, at some point we have to give you a secret password that will be embedded in this episode somewhere. And uh, you will use that password to unlock the post-activity test on FreeCE's website. And then from there, you pass that, you get your one-hour credit. If you are not a member of FreeCE, I definitely encourage you to check out all of their different learning opportunities. They have a lot of really good stuff on their on their website. And so uh, big thanks to them for continuing to partner with us. So what are we talking about tonight, boys? We're talking about IBS. IBS. Irritable bowel syndrome. I think we've done an accredited episode on Crohn's, probably. I think we did ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, maybe. Probably did both, but I don't. We have not, not done one on IBS. On IBS, I was going to say IBD, with the we did with both the of those. with the password. Um, 
Maybe we should just make it fun and do like a word scramble sometime. Just get, just give them like it's six as, letters. And, yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and just have them you, figure it oh, out. People would be so mad. It's, I mean, it's, it's contextually based. So it, sure it, the odds of us getting the per, the correct password, though, after we said <laughs> random letters in the podcast to get them to <laughs> yes, upload it to, to free send it to free CD. Yeah, to zero percent chance. We'd be that like, would work dang out. it, we can't decipher our own words. Yeah, we'd have to listen to the whole episode to try and find out. <laughs> we can't remember where we put the code. Um, yes. IBS. I digress. We're talking about IBS. Um, So we're just going to do an overview. Um, There is an updated guideline from 2022. Um, Mike had mentioned that a while ago, years ago, technically, um, when we probably last talked about this, uh, there was an older guideline from a different institution. Um, The one we're referencing today is the American Gastroenterological Association, Mm -hmm. right? AGA. Yeah, AGA. I think the American um, College of Gastroenterology was the one we did last time from 2020. These acronyms can get confusing. I know. AGA and ACG. Yeah. So the ACG, we'll still mention some of the, and we'll go obviously through and compare and contrast because there are some differences. Yeah. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll touch on both of those. Yeah. Um, so starting from the beginning, what is IBS? It's a group of functional bowel disorders um, with abdominal discomfort or pain. Um, it's usually associated with defecation or a change in bowel habits. Uh, generally, it's uh, more likely to occur in women uh, with, uh, and also in younger people. So about 50% of people with IBS report symptoms beginning before the age of 35. Um, the development of symptoms in people older than 40 doesn't mean it's not IBS, but it might prompt you to look for an underlying organic etiology, like you might need to do um, a colonoscopy or something to rule out more serious issues. Mm-hmm. So some symptoms, um, like Cole said, you can expect altered bowel habits. Uh, this can present in a few different ways. Um, sometimes patients will have uh, postprandial urgency. Um, it can be fairly common. Um, they also may have an alternation between constipation and diarrhea in some cases, um, or a, a lot of times it's you know, more, the symptoms are more concentrated, either constipation or diarrhea, but there is, you know, mixed IBS. Um, abdominal pain is actually one of the criteria now as far as the diagnosis goes. Um, so it's usually, um, you know, diffuse pain in the abdominal region. The kind of the common sites that we would expect, lower abdomen, um, specifically the left lower quadrants, the most common area that we have that, that pain is reported at, but um, abdominal pain is part of the you know, the, the main symptom that people complain about. And then abdominal bloating and distension is also another, um, you know, thing that we can look to, to treat, um, in patients, even if we've resolved some of their symptoms that abdominal bloating may uh, lead us down a path of some of the, uh, augmentation options for treatment. And then, um, some other issues that can kind of present, uh, is, is this, you know, as, as IBS or other conditions, obviously as well, but dyspepsia, um, nausea, vomiting, um, can all be present as well they can be but if it isn't some of those things and it's not necessarily consistent with classic ibs it might prompt you to look a little closer to see if there's any other more significant issues or just something different going on um so if if it starts at an age above 35 onset at middle to older age it might be um warrant looking into it a little more like we said acute symptoms um because irritable bowel syndrome is defined by chronicity kind of over the long term um, if the symptoms are progressive and seemingly worsening over time, that might warrant um, a closer look. Symptoms at night, anorexia or weight loss, fever, um, blood in the stool or rectal bleeding, um, painless diarrhea, 
and gluten intolerance. Have you ever had painless diarrhea? <laughs> never. That's never actually a very good question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Let's just go around the room. Yeah, if everyone could just Everybody give their, talk about uh, their, their, painless their, their personal experience with the situation. I thought that was a very interesting yeah. um, symptom to look further into. I guess, I mean... Like, I could, I so guess you had it, diarrhea. Did it hurt? Probably. Like, I feel like that's actually... Painless diarrhea is probably pretty common. I think it's like when they say pain, they're talking about like, you know... Because IBS is so significantly associated with pain. Right. To say like, no, if you're I just had, having like, you just ate too much Taco Bell for right. one day. You're probably not going to be in a Or just a normal amount of Taco Bell. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or if just you any ate Taco too Bell. much Taco Bell, you're probably going to be in You pain. might be in the ICU. But if you <laughs> eat just a reasonable amount of Taco Bell, you're going to have painless diarrhea. <laughs> That's their slogan. So <laughs> Diarrhea, but painless. But painless. Diarrhea, That's a good one. Diarrhea, Gosh. comma, but painless. I cannot believe they have not asked us to speak at one of their <laughs> employee conventions. If anybody knows the owner of Taco Bell, let them know. All right. So the Rome 4 criteria is how we can uh, sort of um, diagnose someone with IBS. So the, the Rome 4 criteria says that patients have had a recurrent abdominal pain on average at least one day per week um, during the previous three months. And it has to be associated with two or more of the following, either related to defecation. So it can be um, increased or unchanged by defecation uh, so as far as the pain goes. And then associated associated with a change in stool frequency and associated with a change in stool form or appearance. The appearance is going to be very key throughout this episode. Turns out it is. Um, <laughs> Ish. I don't know if we have all the descriptions like we did uh, the one time we talked about it a few years ago. Um, but uh, were you done with that last section? Well, I just, I will say to you know, once you've established IBS, you do kind of want to figure out where there's symptoms predominantly lie, so you can kind of use a subcategory of IBS as well. So if it's IBS with constipation, obviously abnormal bowel movements usually associate with constipation. IBS with diarrhea, with diarrhea is going to be obviously the opposite of that. Um, and then mixed is where they're kind of having both. And there's also unclassified IBS as well. But um, usually IB, um, IBS-C, IBS-D are the two most common ones that you'll run into, at least in my non-GI experience. You might ask yourself, but wait a second, we have IBS-C, we have IBS-D, and we have mixed, but like, where's the line? How do I determine whether it is one or the if other? If only there was a picture of something. <laughs> if only there was a picture with a graph. AJ, so, AJ show my screen, will you? <laughs> we were going to show it. Yeah, why not? Okay, so for those who can see, we have images of, of stool, uh, but it is instilled. It's in, fake stool, by it's, the way. It's fake stool, but it is instilled into a nice graph. So um, basically, you can stratify whether it's IBSC or IBSD or mixed based on the amount of the amount and type of stool that they're having. So if for example 25% of the stools are hard or lumpy, then we would consider that IBSC. If greater than 25% of the stools are loose or watery, we would consider that IBSD. But if it's kind of a mixture of the both, you guessed it. IBS mixed. Mixed. If it's less than 25% of either one, it doesn't hit that threshold, but we still meets the other um, the other classifications for IBS, we'd call that IBS uncategorized. Or person eats too much or, Taco Bell. Or just enough. <laughs> so, yes, that, uh, that interesting graph. Now I know for sure that we have done this topic before. Because it sounds because, very familiar. Well, in this graph, I'm pretty sure we made a joke about we did know, and we had like an, chicken nuggets or i something. recall that we had another slide with the bristol types so the bristol types are descriptions of the types of stool mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. types one through seven 
the lower types are related to harder lumpy stools. The higher types are related to looser watery stools, but they have a description like pebbles and all these kinds of things. I can't remember all of them. We won't go through them, but I do recall. Bristol, I imagine, is a person. And can you imagine <laughs> that your legacy, you've you've named seven types of, <laughs> stool. of stool shapes. We've never the seen The morphology any, of stool is my <laughs> life's work. We've never seen anyone with such a wide variety of stools. Yeah. So we're going to name these categories name these after one you. One through seven. <laughs> yeah, and Bristol did every one of them by himself. Surely it wasn't the person who came up with the names. It was the person who had the types of stool. I feel like what they did is they were bullying Mr. Bristol. They were. I, I say Mr. I don't know who. It could be Mrs. Bristol. It could be. It could be a group of people. Maybe it was a family. I don't know. But It was the Bristols. AJ, will you Google that for there us? Were, he had to have done other stuff. There were seven Bristols, each with their own individual poop type. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and that's they, what they, they compiled their research, and now they have this. But, um, so, yeah, that's uh, definitely an interesting uh I guess research project to to have published. Hey, we're talking about them, and they're not talking about us. So. We didn't address this before the episode, but we should have presumed an episode about poop was going to go off the rails. And yeah, that's because you know, hey, we haven't matured much since the beginning of these podcasts. So, nope. yeah, we're trying. We'll work on it. We both have children, but we're still. Yeah, that's my hard. excuse to uh, stay stay a kid. There you go. Not the fact that I'm just really immature. <laughs> um, all right, so there was a couple things, and these are. Um, kind of tidbits that we had mentioned in the previous episode of, you know, where we covered IBS a couple of years ago. But uh, in 2020, when those guidelines came out from the American College of Gastroenterology, um, there are a couple updates that they had for lab testing. Um, they did say patients, and it was kind of, their recommendations were centered around patients who have IBS with diarrhea specifically. And they said to do uh, serologic testing um, per, can be performed to rule out uh, celiac disease if there's other things that would kind of lead you down um or potentially lead you down that differential diagnosis. And then uh, with IBS with diarrhea, again, um, the fecal calprotectin um, or the fecal lactoferrin and C-reactive protein should be checked even in the absence of alarm features. Um, so those are two recommendations that they said um, you can do as far as lab testing goes. And then they did recommend against um, routine stool testing looking for enteric mm -hmm. pathogens. Um, they recommended against colonoscopy in patients younger than 45 that don't have any like warning signs that would you know indicate they needed a colonoscopy and uh they also recommend against routine food allergy screening unless you know that's obviously there's more evidence that that's probably what's going on but they don't say just to go looking for random food allergies also check out our food allergy episode we did do one food allergy and intolerance i'm remembering all kinds of stuff we've done we did the whole episode on that i know and how we did that Next, we're going to talk about diet restrictions. Yes, we are. I have something I want to say. I'm going to try not to be offensive to my friends oh if any of them happen to listen. Um, but I, I tell you what. I'm excited. I haven't heard Colby offensive, I don't think. I, it, it probably will be to some people. I am. Oh, boy. I am tired. This is where we get canceled. <laughs> I am tired of group get togethers with food mm -hmm. where we have to make like. Dairy-free, mm. gluten-free, everything-free, lactose-free. Have you ever tried Foods. doing it not that way and just telling them it's lactose-free and testing them? That is an interesting way to do it. Because you'd be like, look at that. I cured your celiac disease. That's an interesting way to do it. But um, I tell you what, I, I'm just like, I don't know. It's getting a little tiresome. Yeah, They're very hard to make. 
They're very hard to find things that yeah. don't have any of these things in them. I would go, well, I ordered stuff from Uber Eats because I didn't feel like cooking anything <laughs> for this party. And if you can't eat the stuff from Uber Eats, I'm sorry, that is on you. But I now I recognize that it probably causes a lot of distress to the people who have these issues. Yeah, and that's why right? I would only say that to my friends, by the way. I've gone through my period. I've gone through a period people. of like, uh, I, we thought where I had lactose intolerance and I could I didn't have lactose for a while and then <laughs> I didn't have lactose again. So I don't know. Cured um, it. You beat it. But I don't know. I guess my feeling on it is generally, especially if it's a group like potluck type thing, mm-hmm. like if you have that significant of a restriction, you should bring food that you can eat. But there shouldn't be pressure on the other people to bring food that you can eat. You know what I'm saying? Or are you at fault for letting that pressure get to you? I could be. Well, I don't let it. I, I should say. I'm not the driving force of that in my household. I got you. I'm very I much see. like, let's bring whatever we she want. Like, it would be hilarious to bring whatever we want and then just eat it for all the people that can't. <laughs> and then your wife's like, we're not doing that. Right. It's not. That's ridiculous. I'm, I'm not the one. Right, right, right. You know what I'm saying? That's probably a good thing. So this is more like a conversation that's going on in my household and I'm just airing it, airing my dirty laundry. Right. Um, yeah. It's on the podcast. It's, it's good. Yes. In front of all these people. That, way, that, that way it never gets back to I her. I felt the same thing. And turns out, actually, my aunt does have celiac disease. So... No, uh, no you, I, you make that you make that mistake one time. But so was it, it was at Thanksgiving. But now again. we know for sure now she has it. Confirmed. So I'm not discounting or judging the food intolerances, but I'm just saying in a group setting, it's it is tiresome for all the people to have to be sensitive to it. I no didn't believe her. So, anyways, I gave her a ton of gluten. <laughs> <laughs> anyways, and she that, and she got worse. <laughs> and turns boy, out were people mad. <laughs> um, so I say all that to say that diet restrictions. Yes, there are things that you can do if you're having IBS to kind of exclude certain things from your diet to maybe establish if you have an intolerance to certain things that could, that could make it a little bit better. So we've talked about FODMAPs before: mm-hmm. low fermentable oligo dye and monocosaccharides and polyols um, that can increase your propensity to having IBS-type um, symptoms. Um, also, avoiding lactose and gluten can help in certain cases. Mm-hmm. I was having some significant issues when I was in, like, 6th and 7th grade, and mm. the doctor was like, try going without lactose. So I went lactose-free for, like, three months. Things got better. The lactate ice cream turns out really good Ooh. as a child. Really? It, I mean, I, I wouldn't really. It's no, it's no bluebell. But when <laughs> I was a kid, I was like, mom's giving me all the lacto- lactate yeah. I want. Uh, ice cream I want because I can't have like milk and stuff. So it's great. Um, And then I introduced milk again and I was fine. So I don't know. In some cases it it might help people. Um, Other culprit uh, dietary um, uh, foods might be wheat and rye, onions, pistachio, milk, of course, and ice cream. Apples even, you know, maybe high in in sugar um, cause kind of like an osmotic diarrhea type thing. If you eat too many. Watermelon, sorbitol, and mannitol containing products kind of like the i always think of the um those gummy bears mm-hmm. you know like you, if you load down those gummy bears yep you're gonna you're have, in for a, a night yeah you're in for a night um you might as well have you're calling in sick that next it's day. basically you could do a bowel prep before mm-hmm. colonoscopy or, or you can get a bag of gummy bears or you can get a bag of gummy bears <laughs> and go into a coma um so yes yeah, so sometimes it might you might need to consider a trial of a lactose-free diet um gluten can potentially alter bowel barrier functions in patients with IBSD. Um, there's evidence for non-celiac gluten sensitivities contributing to IBS, um, but, it's, but it's conflicting. Yeah. So there's some that say it's legit. There's some that say it's not quite. Um, there was a meta-analysis looking at um, looking at probiotics. So that's a 
a big topic of conversation, especially in um, bowel issues. Um, so there was one made analysis looking at bifidobacterium infantis, um, which is a common one in probiotics. You just want to make sure that that's what you're seeing when you're looking at it, um, showing that it might help alleviate some symptoms of IBS. This was um, in 2009, American Journal of Gastroenterology. Um, the American College of Gastroenterology 2020 they, guideline that we just talked it. about, they didn't, they weren't, yeah, they didn't buy it. So they they recommended against the use of probiotics um, in IBS. And, and remember, when they say recommend against, that's they're saying because there's no uh, concurrent, like conclusive evidence. They're not saying it's dangerous. They're not, yeah, they're not saying that like if you do it, there's going to be harm or anything. They just can't recommend it as a guideline. It's not strong enough. Exactly. To Doesn't so, necessarily even mean it might not yeah, help you in some I, way. I feel like sometimes people like hear that and they're like, oh, well, and they try to stop it from pe- patients who are taking it. And if it's not causing any issues, then it's like, you know, right. And if they're fine deal. paying for right. it, which they're not cheap either. No, no, no. But yeah, I had a lady just the other day that I saw in clinic that was paying an astronomical amount uh, for this, you know, probiotic that she was getting from like Earth Fair or Whole Foods or something. She's like, no, 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 the guy there, he's extremely knowledgeable and maybe he is. But she was like, seeing this dude's praises, he left a good impression. But he's like, this is the one that he said I needed. I Turns like, out it's just like if a, that guy, it's just a cashier at Whole Foods. He might be getting a he might be getting a, a commission off that because <laughs> they are expensive. And then I hear people talk about the refrigerated versus the non-fridge ones. Mm-hmm. It does make me wonder, like, how do these things live out of the side of the fridge? Like in this pill, how is this probiotic going to survive in that They're pill? in there. It's none <laughs> they're in there. Trust me. Yeah, don't get a microscope and check, but <laughs> they're, they're in there. None of your business. Yeah, that's how. Trade secrets. <laughs> yeah, you're not a PhD. Like how can they, you could how never can they understand. freeze-dry probiotics into this powder form that I can mix with applesauce? And I've got live back. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. No, no, it's just well, not. They live inside of like rocks for hundreds of millions of years. So true. So I presume that they could make it through a uh, a uh, through little, some applesauce, some some drying. If you can make powder. it through a cataclysmic event, <laughs> and then and, and you know be around still, I feel like some applesauce is not going to hold you back. That's a good. Yeah, that's a good point. But um, to jump into some of the treatment options, um, we're going to be basing a lot of this off of the 2022 um, AGA. Uh, practice guidelines that came out that are directly like dealing with the pharmacological management of IBS. And so they have IBS with constipation and diarrhea. They have two separate guidelines that got released at the same time. Um, So we'll start off with constipation and we'll kind of go through some of the different treatment options that are out there. And then we'll touch on, you know, with, with diarrhea as well. And then at the end, we'll kind of look at the algorithm that they published and go through it. So to start things off, we'll talk about a very low quality evidence um, recommendation that they do include in their new updated guidelines, and that is the uh, consideration of using osmotic laxatives such as polyethylene glycol, Miralax being the brand name, um, as an appropriate potential option for patients, at least with mild IBS with constipation. Um, the dosing is still going to be 17 grams, which is just one capful of powder. If you're not familiar with, with, uh, Miralax, one capful of powder, 17 grams. You mix that in four to eight ounces of liquid. Um, and that can be water, juice, it can be soda, it can be coffee, tea, whatever you want. Um, it'll dissolve and it's supposed to be tasteless and, uh, and you're not supposed to be able to even tell by texture or anything that there's anything in there. It dissolves very quickly. And, um, you know, the, can, can be an effective, you know, method for getting people again with more mild symptoms, but kind of getting them more regular again. Uh, Mechanistically, it's, it's working by 
you know, causing fluid to be drawn into the bowel lumen through osmosis. So it distends the colon, increases peristalsis. Um, the onset of action is a little bit variable depending on the patient. And so, you know, 24 hours is kind of like on the short side versus, you know, it could take up to 96 hours for some patients. Uh, it just kind of depends, you know, on how they respond. But I think the important thing is to remind patients that it's not going to work like a stimulant laxative or, right. you know, right away. Because I will say I've talked to patients who take one dose and they're like, nope, garbage. And now if you're taking like the bowel prep form, it's going to work a lot quicker because you're doing much higher doses. And make sure if you are using polyethylene glycolides, it's not the one with all the electrolytes and stuff like that that they use for the bowel preps. Right. You just give them a jar, the uh, the, the gallon uh, <laughs> container. Here, this is your new medicine. <laughs> Um, adverse effects, and usually they're pretty mild, but um, can cause some abdominal cramping, diarrhea, dyspepsia, nausea, kind of all the things you don't want to happen in IBS. So, uh, again, low quality or low certainty evidence um, as far as that recommendation goes, but they did mention it. So, there you go. There are some things they didn't mention, but that you definitely will see over the counter and your patients will more than likely try. Um, then, you know, it can be effective for mild constipation, but aren't really referenced uh, as a recommendation for IBS. Bulk forming agents um, like Metamucil, Fibercon, Citrucel, um, they create a gel-like matrix in the stool. They soak up fluid and they add bulk to the stool to try to help move it on out. Um don't use these if there's a fecal impaction, which you'd have bigger problems there, of course, or a GI obstruction. And these are also not going to be really fast acting, 12 to 72 hours. So just set expectations there. Um, you see these, I don't know, you kind of see these as pe people kind of take them like multivitamins, you mm -hmm. know, just kind of like a daily thing to keep your regular sort of deal. Um, but do take it two hours before or after other medications. You need to have adequate fluid intake for it to be effective. But it can also have similar side effects of gas, bloating, um, rarely can have a cause of serious bowel obstruction. So be aware of that. Could you imagine you're trying to just improve your IBS and instead you just give yourself a bowel obstruction with fiber? That'd be a bad day. I'd be so mad. I'd be pretty upset. I'd be like, this is the worst outcome <laughs> that I could add. I should have just kept it with constipation. Um, I, I think that's uh, every time I hear that class i remember like when, well, i can't remember which group of my PA students it was but I, I made a comment about and called them bulk forming agents and they were like if, it, if you're making it bulkier why would that help for constipation like are you sure your slides are right and they start I was like whoa 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 we're not gonna have mutiny on my hands right now <laughs> i'm reading off the, i'm reading off lexicomp as we speak <laughs> but yeah so bulk forming agents not recommended like coles or not mentioned like coles but you will see some people mention them like up to date and stuff like that um, there was a uh, 2011 um, systematic review that showed no beneficial effect for bulking agents over placebo as far as the improvement in abdominal pain, which, again, is kind of like one of the main symptoms that we're looking at in IBS specifically. Um, there, there was a 2012 study in the British Medical Journal showed, um, that showed slight improvement with psyllium and um, 2008 looked at uh, improvement with Buran and showed no effect over placebo. So very, very limited uh, evidence when it comes to the fiber supplements. Right. Um, so that brings us to the first prescription option for IBS-C, um, Imatiza Lubipristone. It's a chloride channel activator that acts locally on the apical membranes of the intestinal epithelial cells to increase fluid secretion. They also increase fecal transit to help move it along so it's approved um fda approved for ibsc in women 18 years and older um it's approved um in all adults for, for chronic idiopathic constipation chronic idiopathic constipation 
Um, it hasn't been compared directly to other treatment options. Um, I, I feel like I saw it relatively frequently compared to some of the other prescription agents. Uh, it needs to be taken with food as well. Yeah. And as far as like the data um, dealing with Amatiza, there was one 12-week study that showed basically an 18% overall response compared to 10% with placebo. Um, the, the benefits did kind of persist um, or even increased uh, as far as the, the two um, the two treatment arms kind of kept getting further apart as far as the uh, effects. But um, benefits did persist throughout the 52-week follow-up. And um, in the 2012, um, the guidelines changed the definition for a response um, in IBS with constipation studies. So they did a post hoc analysis of that same initial Amatiza study, reviewed the original data, and then they were able to show the 24% reduction um, or overall response, I should say, and then 13% placebo. So also the placebo you know, response went up as well. So that's kind of a high placebo. It's like they loosened the criteria for response. Yeah. So like, we just got to get above 20. <laughs> so, um, so the the other thing is if you look at the uh, the onset of that relief, um, it, you know, it did take some patients a month um, to actually start seeing any kind of benefit from it. And so giving patients sort of that heads up that this is going to take a while to, to see some relief um, usually is uh, at least, you know, something you should mention to them so they don't just stop taking it um, because they feel like it's not doing anything. It's a pretty long time. It is, yeah. And I, I will say from my personal experience um, dealing with this, and I have by no means have a lot of experience with this, but a couple of patients that I've worked with this one, it's the ones who have way too many side effects with the next few agents we're going to talk about that Amatiza worked really well for, and the patients who, you know, the other agents worked great for, Amatiza was like way too weak or wimpy, whatever you want to call mm. it. So I, that's kind of how I feel. Like even though they're, it's got a moderate recommendation as far as the level of um, or the certainty of evidence um, from the guidelines, but the data is a lot weaker. In fact, the, the response that they had was actually like not really what they didn't consider it clinically meaningful in the, one of the studies. So it's, it's definitely in my opinion, at least one of the wimpier, you know, these, these types of meds. Um, Cause I think I, I would, it's not, it's not as wimpy as like, you know, polyethylene glycol, but right. it's uh, of, of all the other prescriptions, it's definitely one of the wimpier ones. Um, adverse effects too. Uh, we have to watch out for some GI issues like nausea, diarrhea, obviously anything that's correcting constipation can go too far the other way. And then hypokalemia is something to be aware of as well. Yeah. That's the, probably the big one. Yeah. Um, so a couple of other options under the class of guanylate cyclase agonists are Linzess and True Lance. So they increase chloride and bicarbonate secretion into the intestinal lumen, which helps get things moving. Um, interestingly, in animal studies, they saw some deaths related to dehydration. Uh, so they recommend avoiding the use in pediatric patients, and there's also a boxed warning for that. Um, Linzess must be kept in the original container, FYI to the dispensing pharmacist, not to uh, make that easy mistake. And um, Linzess needs to be taken 30 minutes before breakfast on an empty stomach, but True Lance doesn't matter. So a little more convenient can be taken with or without food. Yeah, I think um, the one of them, the True Lance is the one that's not pH dependent, I guess. So the, but they sense. are they are uh, the same class, like Cole said, and there are several studies that there's three studies specifically that have looked at um, the True Lance, and, and there's actually four randomized control studies that have looked at Linzess. Um, one of them in particular, the Linzess, uh, was comparing 
you know, the 290 micrograms uh, of lenses versus placebo and showed uh, a significant reduction in symptoms um, with lenses compared to placebo. So the number needed to treat for the primary outcome was only six patients. And uh, statistical difference from placebo was reached by the end of week one. So much quicker uh, onset of action and relief of symptoms. Um, one study showed a continued benefit uh, at six months, um, where that's kind of unique because most of the IBS studies are much shorter than that. And then um, there was a study that compared TrueLance 3 milligrams to placebo and, again, showed a significant reduction in symptoms. Uh, number needed to treat in that study was 9. And, um, again, the statistical difference um, compared to placebo was reached by the end of week 1. So definitely a much quicker uh, response. So the guidelines uh, do have these separated, though, which is actually pretty nice um, because before it was kind of just like, well, pick whatever one is covered um, because they're both kind of the same. But the, like I said, the LensS actually has uh, four randomized controlled trials, one of which I think the, I think the most recent one that they include um, was uh, one that was done in China. And so we just have a lot um, better data and all of the endpoints that they were looking for as far as the relief of symptoms were improved with lens S. And so because of that, because of the extra study that they have done with it, the um, AGA 2022 guidelines recommend lens S with a high certainty of uh, evidence mm. and then true lens with a moderate certainty of evidence. Nice. So it's, that's kind of, uh, I would say pretty helpful as far as differentiating between which option to go with. So when you have those more, uh, and you'll see this when we look at the algorithm, but when we have uh, more serious uh, cases, uh, more severe cases of, of IBS with constipation, then um, probably Linzess would be the best thing to start off with. Nice. Good to have some guidance. Yeah. Um, so the last med for IBSC is relatively new. Um, I don't know if we've talked about it before. I can't remember when it came out. Maybe. Um, Maybe. At least a couple years ago. But um, it's classified as a as a... NHE3, standing for Sodium Hydrogen Exchanger 3. It's branded as Ibs Ibsrella. Ibsrella? That's a tough one, but you know why it's named that? Hmm. IBS Rella. Ibsrella. Yes. Yes. That's right. Terrible thing to pronounce. Generic <laughs> is um, Tenapanor, but it acts locally to reduce sodium absorption from the small intestine and colon, reducing sodium absorption. Um, leads to increasing intestinal lumen water secretion, and that will accelerate uh, intestinal transit time. So it has a similar box warning for risk of serious dehydration uh, in pediatric patients like Linzess and True Lance. It can also cause diarrhea, I suppose if it works too well. It can also cause dizziness and abdominal distension, uh, so be aware of that. And the it's also got a moderate uh, level of evidence that it, based on the guideline recommendation. So, um, again, it's definitely an option and um, something that, uh, you know, I, I would say if the patient is not doing as well maybe on Linzess, then instead of trying TrueLens, which we know is going to be very similar, same class and all that, then maybe this would be a good option to, to switch them to at that point. Um, before we move on, though, mm. it's that time of the episode where we give you the, the super secret uh, password that we came up with three seconds before we started recording. It's time for the word scramble. And yeah, so the first word is, is Z. No, okay. So the the password for this episode is bowel. B o w e l. B is in boy. B not is in boy. To be confused with vowel. Not to be confused so. with V is in Victor vowel. <laughs> bowel. B o w e l. All caps. That's your password. Good luck on your it might super be, tough exam. With it might questions. be LWOB. What? Could be LWOB. Oh, because it's a word mixture. I got it's you. It's a word scramble. I, like, I, I believe it is pronounced bowel, <laughs> but 
<laughs> but it could be Elwab. That's, that's a good. That's a good. That's definitely a good thought. Thank you, Cole. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All so right. IBS diarrhea. Move on. Yes. Um, you know, when you were mentioning those criteria earlier for like IBS with diarrhea, I was like, man, I think I definitely have qualified for that at some point in my life. And it got me thinking about, um, I don't know if I've told the story on the podcast or not, but I went on a medical mission trip to South Africa when I was a student. Um, it was me as a pharmacy student with a lot of other physician assistants and physician assistant students. One notably was my girlfriend at the time, who's mm-hmm. now my wife. So that's pretty much probably why I went. Um and, uh, and, you know, they tell you when you go to these foreign countries not to drink the water mm-hmm. because you'll get traveler's diarrhea. And I did have a prescription for, I don't know, Cipro or something. I um, can't remember what it was. Uh, and then I brought, like, Lepiramide and um, Pepto-Bismol in case I had any, any problems. But I didn't drink the water. I was very careful. But we had this, you know, we were kind of roughing it. And um, I was staying in this hut. And outside the hut was a outhouse you know like a hole in the ground with um it also had the shower in there and then there's no running water so they had a barrel pretty much on top of the outhouse that created water pressure and it would come through a pipe and then spew out interestingly they did have some sort of heating mechanism it was like this flash heater that just flashed the water really hot when it came out high risk for electrocution right but actually was pretty comfortable nice um Nobody told me to keep your mouth shut while you're taking a shower Uh-oh. so that you can't get some of that barrel water into your mouth. Long story short. You got the barrel water. I got the barrel water uh-huh. and had a just horrible <laughs> night. Of well, Montezuma diarrhea. came back and got you. Every couple, I mean, every five, ten minutes was going back out to this outhouse filled with bugs mm. in this hole in the ground. Could you imagine if the way you end that, like, not only did you have that experience, but then you also get malaria on top of it. <laughs> it was a high possibility. <laughs> that's that's not a good way to end that trip. So it was a terrible night. I did end up going to the clinic still the next day and participating, but but I took a bunch of lopiramide, a bunch of Pepto, I took the antibiotics. So the next day, I actually did not go like the whole entire day, but I had this feeling of um, horrible abdominal pain and um, urgency the yeah. whole entire day. We had to, to ride three hours in a bumpy van across <laughs> South Africa in dangerous areas, and yeah. the whole time I'm like, "You're just going. I'm going to get the danger. I, I have to get." I, I was the about to tell the driver to stop the van the whole entire time because I thought I was going to have to go out with the zebras in the brush. Of course, what other choice did you have? That that was that hopefully was probably my worst. My worst experience I, it, my it, whole life. Sounds like the worst. It was, <laughs> it was terrible. I had to go. I'm gonna step outside real quick. Uh, hopefully, a lion doesn't eat me. <laughs> tell me what. Yeah, would that's. You, that's would tough. you classify that as painful diarrhea? I would classify that was not painless diarrhea. Yeah, it was. It, it was sure. definitely mixed uh, pain <laughs> as far as pain goes. Yeah, 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 that sounds painful. That yeah. sounds awful. It was. I thought everybody would be interested in that. Yeah, story. no, that's really good for. I appreciate you sharing that. I'm it's, sure. Hopefully yeah, no one was eating their you know, breakfast when, or not. When you're teaching, you have to, to put the content right. in context. It's a good tool. Yeah. For sure. It's it's yeah. So if you guys are wanting to take notes here, <laughs> that's the that's the takeaway Don't from drink this the episode about water. You're yeah, do not drink the Don't barrel drink water. Don't drink the barrel water. Don't open your mouth in the shower. Yeah. Especially it's not. It's not just what you would think is drinking water. Right. Yeah. I don't really think of the shower water even here as drinking water, but <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I'm really thirsty and I'm we, like, we got to get you a better, you know, it's, it's we got to get you a better fridge. This water's pretty hot, but I need to, I'm really thirsty. So. <laughs> Just scold your, your, I am really mouth. bad about staying hydrated. And so sometimes when I think about it, it's like when I'm showering right before bed and I'm like, I need to hydrate. So it's clean. It's, that's that's it sounds gross. It's clean. It's, yeah, but there's no ice in it. No, there's not. <laughs> it's not refreshing. No, it's not. Oh, uh, anyways, now I'm going to be thinking about that every time I get in a shower. I'm like, this is 
crazy freaking cold drink in the water <laughs> in here getting may or may not have soap in his mouth <laughs> all right so uh the first medication when it comes to ibs with diarrhea being the predominant symptom would be and, and this is where the guidelines definitely differ between the two because the 2020 guidelines say actually don't use this 2022 aga says that you could consider it for mild ibs diarrhea it does give a very low certainty of evidence but it's still still listed. So lopiramide or imodium AD, as Cole had obviously taken way too high of a dose before he went on his little uh, uh, trip through South Africa. My walkabout. So uh, mechanistically, it's going to um, work directly on intestinal muscles uh, through the opioid receptor. And so this is going to inhibit uh, peristalsis, prolong transit time, reduce fecal volume, uh, increases viscosity, it diminishes the fluid electrolyte loss. And uh, so working on multiple paths to kind of keep the patient from having that, uh, that main symptom that they're trying to avoid, being diarrhea. Um, the suggested dosing, uh, and this is the dosing specifically for... Um, like if even like acute diarrhea as well, not, not even just IBS, but having um, two milligrams is kind of like the starting dose, um, 45 minutes before a meal. Uh, you can do that like for regularly scheduled, you know, if you want to have a max dose of 16 milligrams per day, or if it's an acute situation and, you know, you're trying to use this just for temporary relief, four milligrams is the loading dose, and then two milligrams after each loose stool. Still probably trying to keep it under 16 milligrams per day. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a systematic review that showed lopiramide being superior to placebo for IBS diarrhea patients, um, effective at decreasing stool frequency and consistency, um, not uh, symptoms of bloating or abdominal discomfort, which obviously with the new room four criteria is an important piece of the puzzle. Well, I definitely have bloating and abdominal discomfort. You, you really can put yourself in I can in this speak very well to Very this. well. No, it's impressive, for sure. You've had a rough go of it, it sounds like. Not only that piece, but the other piece is that <laughs> lopiramide has potential for abuse, which I think I may have accidentally done. Yeah. Um, <laughs> patients... If have, anybody knows a good counselor to get cold to. <laughs> to get me through my lopiramide addiction. Yeah. Uh, patients have used um, over-the-counter lopiramide to self-treat symptoms of opioid withdrawal mm-hmm. um, or to achieve euphoric effects of opioid use, so like potentiating an, an opioid high. Um, because of its effects on the opioid receptor. Yeah. And, there, and, there, and there's cases of people overdosing and actually passing away from lopiramide. It has a box warning for um, cases of torsades, um, arrhythmias, cardiac arrest, death. Yeah. So that was a def- definitely a risk for me that night. Mm-hmm. I could have died from drinking. You think the, you took more than 16 milligrams? I actually probably did not. Like, that would be eight <laughs> capsules. Yeah. At I the doubt. time, you were probably like, That's, this is so much. I know. I not realizing that I could probably take 32 milligrams and not you know, Die. maybe not. Probably right. that's probably not probably not true. But um, so I doubt that sick. I even took over sixteen. But I could have because I was just you like, were not counting. I was not counting. Lots Take, of pep could have been one. Could have been ten. Could have been. <laughs> it could have been. Um, it does have some contraindications. So um, like severe uh, instances, like bloody diarrhea with a high fever, don't take lupiramide. Could, could be C diff. Could be C diff. Could be something serious. Um, and then of course, like Mike said can still cause abdominal cramping, um, constipation, which I think I probably went from diarrhea to constipation. Case what? Exhibit A. Exhibit A. Um, nausea, had that. Mm-hmm. And uh, QT prolongation. Did you have that? Hence the torsades. I could have. We don't know. Didn't have a dang EKG with Unbelievable. me. Unbelievable. What do you, you go to a, a medical missions trip, don't even bring an EKG I, to tech yourself I in know. case you get horrible diarrhea. We did smuggle in lots of bags of drugs, but apart from that, 
No EKG. Like like medical, like approved drugs, guys. Well, sure. And in case, could you imagine? We that's how Cole lets <laughs> us know that he's a drug smuggler. <laughs> that would be fun. We never suspected anything. <laughs> Um, all right, so another option is uh, Zyfaxin, uh, which is an antibiotic that you know stays in the GI tract. It doesn't get absorbed systemically, so you don't really see this being used um, outside of you know uh, things that have to do with the GI system in particular. So it was originally actually um, designed to reduce hepatic encephalopathy recurrence, um, and they would add it to like lactulose or something. But it's also used now for like traveler's diarrhea. So Cole might have been a candidate for this at one point. Didn't have access um, to it. Didn't have access to it. And then also uh, IBS with diarrhea, particularly patients who are having a hard time with the bloating um, from it. So the dosing is a little bit different uh, than you might think as far as, you know, the, the Zyfaxin goes. So it, it's 550 milligrams, but you do it three times a day and only for 14 days. So it's like a way of kind of jumpstarting the, the patient's, you know, relief of symptoms. And you can consider retreating if the patient does have an initial, um, you know, relief or at least improvement in symptoms. Uh, if they, at that point, over time, start to develop those symptoms, they start getting worse again, you can retreat with another two-week course of Zefaxin. But it is going to be uh, potentially expensive depending on their insurance. The, 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 the drug is still very expensive, but as far as insurance coverage and things like that, um, it just kind of depends. Uh, adverse effects, peripheral edema um, have been reported with, with this particular drug, dizziness, headache, flatulence, some of the other GI stuff that we typically think of. Um, peripheral edema is one that, you know, obviously be aware of for your cardiac patients and things like that that may have other comorbidities. And um, the American College of Gastroenterology suggests that the, uh, they call it the non-absorbable antibiotic, Zyfaxin uh, for reduction in global IBS symptoms as well as bloating and non-constipated, they put it in non-constipated IBS patients. So um, I guess, you know, IBS with diarrhea. <laughs> yeah. So it's probably an easier way to say that. But uh, so, yeah, it's definitely a option. Um Although potentially an expensive option, but it is only for two weeks. So interestingly, we manage that in our specialty group. Yeah, Zyfaxin. Yeah, it's got a pretty good three forty B price for those yeah. who have access to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, another one is Viberzy. Uh, it's generic is Eluxadiline. Mm-hmm. Uh, but close by, enough. Yeah, close enough. But it's an it's a mixed mu opioid receptor agonist, kappa opioid receptor agonist, which acts locally to reduce abdominal pain and diarrhea. Um, it doesn't have constipating adverse effects, which is pretty nice uh, for somebody who's experienced those. Um, can't be used in patients without a gallbladder. So if they've had a gallbladder removed, it's a contraindication. Um, if they uh, are an alcoholic, an active alcoholic, or patients who drink greater than three alcoholic drinks per day. Uh, it potentially increases risks for pancreatitis, and it has other adverse effects like nausea, abdominal pain, upper respiratory infections, they list constipation, I know. even though they mentioned that it, it also was didn't have that as an adverse effect. They're so. just hoping you didn't look at that. So <laughs> you didn't pay close attention. Um, you do want to take it with food, and interestingly, it's a controlled substance because of its action on the opioid receptors. Now, I, I know I've told this story before, so if you guys have heard me say this, just, well, you're going to hear it again. It's not a lot we can do about that. <laughs> but uh, I, when I was working in it, I think it was an intern at the time, but uh, I was working in like a dispensing pharmacy and uh, this, you know, older patient came through and uh, her Viberzy was not ready. And she was quite upset instantly um, because she was having a bad day. And I was trying to explain that it wasn't due to be like, we couldn't fill it because it was a controlled substance. And all that. She's like, it's not a controlled substance. I was like, well, man, it, it actually it is. I know it seems kind of silly that they made it that, but because it's similar to 
some of the pain meds as far as like what it works on in the body. You know, they made it a controlled substance. And she goes, it's just it's the top of her lungs. Because it is for my diarrhea. <laughs> it's not for pain. And I was like, yep. <laughs> I'm also aware of that. <laughs> but I just thought that was really funny. She's just got that. That I rate to where she screamed out my diarrhea in I've, the middle of the waiting room. There's been so many instances that I can recall in retail pharmacy where somebody did scream out at the top of their lungs. A patient, mm-hmm. not myself. Um, <laughs> That's good. I really feel for you guys. Yeah, find the good fight. I I do wonder at what point, like in my bad day, I'd be having where I would actually just start yelling something like that at a random stranger about your diarrhea. Yeah, like that's for my diarrhea, just causing a scene. Or about your Flonase being ten (laughs) dollars. Yeah, lots of yelling at a stranger. Ten dollars for Flonase. The southern accents just go going crazy because I can't believe that uh, I can't believe (laughs) that to pay some Flonase is just nasal spray. I can get Afrin right here. Like it's not the same thing. Anyways, okay. Now you guys know where we, where we work in uh, good old South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Out in the country. Okay. Um, Allocetron uh, is another potential option for diarrhea or IBS with diarrhea. And it's only approved for female patients whose symptoms have lasted for six months and who have failed to respond to all other conventional treatment. Uh, so this one is a uh, works on a serotonin receptor. So it's a 5H, 5H3 antagonist, um, 5-HT3. I guess I could say the, the uh, abbreviation correctly. That would help. And then um, adverse effects, that, and the reason why it's only approved for patients who have you know, failed other treatments, female patients specifically, is that uh, one of the warnings on it is they can cause ischemic colitis and um, complications uh, of severe constipation, uh, which actually led to its initial withdrawal from the U.S. market. Um, it is still available under like a strict prescribing program. Um, the, the starting dose is, is lower than it was previously when it was FDA approved for, you know, just distribution. So it's, it's still out there, but it is hard to, much harder to get access to. And it's something you should save for last line. Yep. That's IBSD. Now IBS mixed. No, I'm just kidding. We're just going to talk about global symptoms. So this can happen with everybody. Yes. Mixed. You just treat, you know, whatever one's the predominant right. factor at that moment. Right. So IBS global symptoms. Yeah. How would you describe global symptoms? I, I think it's just one of the, like the, the pain and discomfort from the abdominal region. Like the um, non-constipation, below, yeah, yeah. the non-diarrhea-related adverse effects. Yeah, right? usually like just the, the this little pain, right. you know, that's, that is very con- obviously a part of IBS. But um, it, I'd say the, the treatment of this that's actually recommended in both guidelines is tricyclic antidepressants. So a lot of times, we, you know, I, at least... Before I'd read the guidelines, you know, from 2020 even, I was kind of always assumed, well, antispasmodics would be probably the, the, the best thing for that. But there's actually a lot of data around um, both tertiary uh, amine tricyclics and secondary amine tricyclics. So from a tertiary standpoint, you know, the amitriptyline, doxepin, imipramine, and then from a secondary amine standpoint, we have disipramine and nortriptyline. So these are going to block the reuptake of serotonin, norepinephrine. They're blocking acetylcholine. Um, they're blocking uh, from binding to the muscarinic receptors. They're blocking histamine from binding to histamine receptors. And, um, you know, they... Uh, definitely have their fair share of side effects. In fact, um, some of them that are more cardiotoxic, um, like amitriptyline, uh, they can 
they can cause fatal arrhythmias if you take too high of a dose. And so patients, you know, even a, even a reasonable dose, if they do have like cardiac risk factors, if they're in and they're over the age of 50, it's probably in the patient's interest to get an EKG if possible prior to them, you know, starting treatment just to make sure there's not some kind of underlying arrhythmia there. Uh, adverse effects that are very common, um, orthostasis, um, and then anticholinergic effects in general, uh, vivid dreams, weight gain, um, sedation, and sweating are all, you know, pretty common. The tertiary amines that I mentioned are the ones that are going to be more likely to have those adverse effects. Um, I will say if you are trying to think about like which of these would you use in a patient, if it's a patient with IBS with constipation, um, then giving something like amitriptyline, which has, you know, probably one of the more higher anticholinergic uh, effects, is probably not going to be the best bet because that's going to induce even further constipation. So you might help with their global symptoms, but the actual constipation itself is going to potentially get worse. Um, and so using one of the secondary means in that case, if it's a patient with IBS with diarrhea, though, then that's where your, your boy amitriptyline can come in and uh, hopefully save the day with mm-hmm. inducing some of that anticholinergic effect and actually improving uh, the, the symptom of diarrhea That's and the global symptoms. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mike mentioned the tertiaries are a little more side effect heavy. Secondaries are a little less. So if you had to rank them, amitriptyline is probably mm-hmm. has the most side effects. Yeah. Amipramine would be next. Then nortriptyline, then disipramine, maybe at the bottom. Yeah. Um, they are both, like Mike said, recommended by the ACG and the AGA guidelines, but antispasmodics, in the 2020 ACG guidelines, they recommend against them. So uh, Mike mentioned um, dicyclamine, bental, um, also hyoscyamine. But the 2022 AGA guidelines say you can use them. They recommend their use, but they give a low certainty of evidence for mm-hmm. them as being beneficial. Um, which, I mean, I don't know. If they seem to be effective and they're not dangerous, I mean, I guess they can't have side effects. But I, I think... The 2020 guidelines, I think their argument against it was that you're if you constantly give you you know these antispasmodics, you could be masking how severe their IBS actually is, and in yeah. masking how well controlled or, or the need to escalate therapy. I can see that because I definitely had some patients who would get a buttload, no pun intended, of <laughs> hyoscyamine and dicyclamine. Yeah, like a lot of it. A lot. And I think that's what they were trying to avoid is just those like, you know, dicyclamine with all these different refills and, yeah. you know, just keeping patients on it long term because they are supposed to be an acute right. you know, it's thing. It's really to, a PRN thing yeah. for like breakthrough discomfort versus right. something they take prophylactically to prevent the discomfort, which I'm, I'm, many people I saw do mm-hmm. it that way. Yeah. So just we'll, we'll touch on those two in particular. So um, hyoscyamine is, is a very common antispasmodic or, or uh, anticholinergic as well as how you would also classify that. Uh, the dosing typically is 0.125 milligrams to 0.25 milligrams taken either uh, orally or sublingually, um, usually three to four times a day as needed, as Cole said, not to be scheduled indefinitely. Um, adverse effects, obviously anticholinergic effects, so blurred vision, dry mouth, um, you know, constipation, all those things are potential, uh, can potentially occur with any anticholinergic. Tachycardia um, has been reported, abdominal pain, 
Um, so definitely not, you know, completely benign, but a, a lot of times patients can take these without having um, too, too, you know, many issues as far as adverse effects. Dicyclamine is also antispasmodic, uh, anticholinergic. Uh, it's dosed usually 20 milligrams four times a day. Um, it's something that we should typically avoid if a patient has ulcerative colitis as well um, due to the increased risk of toxic, um, toxic megacolon. And um, the besides the anticholinergic effects, the other adverse effect that kind of stands out to me is that it can induce anxiousness in some patients. Mm. So if they have a more, uh, you know, um, an underlying anxiety disorder or anything like that, then maybe use some caution. It would probably be a good reason why not to use these in some of those patients. That's interesting. So it kind of fits the bill with some of the patients who would take a lot of dental <laughs> yeah. that I've seen. Yeah. Um, yeah. And AJ, will you switch over to my screen again real quick? So this is uh, an algorithm that the AGA guideline published along with their actual guideline. And so you can go on the website and get this access to this for free. But um, it's at the top kind of run down this algorithm. It says all IBS patients. So you've established they have IBS Moving on. Um, it does talk about, you know, um, education and resources about like, lifestyle modifications. So dealing with stress reduction, exercise, sleep, and then all the different potential dietary modifications that can help. So things we talked about, lo the low food mops or fiber, things like that. Um, at that point, once you've kind of given the lifestyle um, and, you know, changes in information that they, you know, could benefit from just overall, then obviously you want to kind of classify them as either being IBS with constipation or IBS with diarrhea um, or a mixture, obviously. Uh, if it's constipation and it's more of a mild form, for the constipation itself, then you could get away, uh, or at least with a trial of Miralax, polyethylene glycol, um, that we talked about at the beginning. And at, at this point, if they are having the... Uh, global symptoms, the abdominal pain in particular, then you can consider the antispasmodics um, and uh, so hyacinine, the uh, dicyclamine, and then also uh, peppermint oil is one that um, the, even the 2020 guidelines did recommend um, as an option. Um, so on the IBS with diarrhea side, uh, if it's mild for the diarrhea itself, you can use lipiramide. Um, they also mentioned potentially using bile acid um, sequestrants, so like um, Wellcall, but uh, they didn't really go into that in detail in the guideline itself. They just kind of threw it on the algorithm, so that's kind of interesting. And then same thing with the abdominal pain here. You can use the antispasmodics, peppermint oil um, would be a good option for those those global symptoms at that point. So that's mild. Now, if they have uh, more of a moderate presentation or um, you know more severe, where they're you know actually looking at um, you know patients that need to escalate therapy, on the constipation side, we have our secretagogues, so our Linzess, Amatiza, Trulance, all that good stuff, Isbrella. Um, and remember, the Linzess is the one that has the highest like level of evidence as far as. Um, the, the newest guideline goes. So that would be one that I'd, I'd say probably would start off with. And then, like I had said earlier, if, if the patient is having issues with side effects, specifically like if the lenses is causing just really bad diarrhea, um, really bad abdominal issues, then dropping it down to like amatiza, yeah, I find at least in my very little limited experience, tends to be a good option because it's a wimpier drug in the first mm -hmm. place. Um, if the lenses was working or, or not necessarily you know, fixing their symptoms or at least completely putting their symptoms in remission, but they weren't having the side effects to it. Um, at that point, if it, if you are going to switch true Lance or the Isbrella would probably be the, the better options at that point. Um, and then one that we didn't mention that it is on the guideline is the, um, 
Tech Eserod, which is one that we didn't really cover. It's been removed off the market, like, officially, I think, in November, maybe, of last year, 2022. And um, so the guidelines were published before that happened. And so the, there's, like, a very, very limited supply left in the U.S. that is, once it's used up, they're not going to make any more. Um, and then on the diarrhea side, again, if it's, you know, more moderate to severe, we're looking at Zyfaxin, um, using a low-dose tricyclic uh, as well, like amitriptyline, disipramine, one of the, the medications that can you know, induce constipation, basically those anticholinergic effects. And then um, Viberzi is another option at that level. And then last, you would try the Elisetron. Um, it's kind of, you know, for your female patients that are uh, able to... Uh, tolerate that without worrying about the ischemic colitis and those, you know, major potential risks. And then uh, from there, um, if it's still not enough, then you can, you know, add or switch to a low-dose TCA if they're not already on that. Um, there's some very, very limited and not very good evidence with SNRIs. Um, there's something called brain-gut behavior uh, therapy that can be done. So like CBT, um, hypnosis, things like that that can you can use to improve brain-gut behavior therapy. So that's kind of like their last uh, line of defense, so to speak. That's so hopefully the medication. An interesting one. <laughs> Mindfulness about your uh, GI I'm issues. I'm going to hypnotize you into someone who doesn't have diarrhea. Dude, I want to be hypnotized so bad. I'm going to hypnotize your your um, gut bacteria. There's zero chance I'm going to get hypnotized. I would. Someone's waving a. You think it's legit? Some of those videos. I think some people can be. I don't know. Yeah. I don't think everybody can be. They're there. just prone. I, I, there's no way my brain would even let me be in the mindset of like, oh, I'm just going to relax. And I, know. Like, I would even be making I, fun of it the entire even time. Even if I actively tried, yeah. like, you know, I recognize that the only way for this to happen would be for me to just yeah. accept it and be... Yeah. And my, no my brain's like, don't, don't do that. Yeah. That's, don't be a wuss, dude. <laughs> don't, don't give in. <laughs> just, just sit on the couch with my eyes wide open. I imagine they screen those people before they do, like... You know, they yeah. kind of have an idea who they're would probably, be. They're probably, I mean, like the magic shows and stuff. Like the ones that are yeah. actually like. like Balk like a chicken and stupid yeah. stuff. Those, those, I feel like those have to be plants or just very easily. If, I'm, I'm sure there are If those are shows, real people that are that easy to manipulate with trickery. I'm sure there are many that are plants. We could, but we could have an army. You would think that it would be much more widely known if all of them were just totally, totally faked. You know what I mean? 50 yeah. bucks, I'll keep the secret. Yeah, I'm that's telling. Good, I would tell everybody point. if if I learned how to do hip, hypnosis on people, and I was and I actually was like, I can. Make, I would that would be. I wouldn't do anything else <laughs> all, all day long. Just like, hey, just <laughs> doing it to the dog. He thinks he's a cat now. It'd be hilarious. Anyways, so that's our time for today. Um, I hope that was helpful. And uh, AJ, did we miss anything? We got. Anything else we got to make sure we touch on before we get out of here? We had a question from YouTube. We're streaming. They asked, can we evaluate the efficacy of docusate sodium? So wait, is that uh, is that YouTube channel that commented? Is there, is there a name SIP2D6? You, yeah, you're nice. correct. That is the, the, Fantastic. That's the most hardcore YouTube channel. There's no numbers after it. It's just 2D6. They got the first. They got it. That's incredible. I wonder Good. what other SIPs are out there that I could snag. I don't you know. get three or four tonight. Don't you do 2C19? it. 19 <laughs> That might be mistaken. No, no, I don't COVID related. Yeah, you get you get flagged on YouTube <laughs> immediately. Yeah. So, um, so as far as docusate goes, you know, a stool softener. Um, just to address that really quick, yeah, I don't have the literature in front of me as far as the IBS specifically, but I, the way I kind of think of that is, this, from a stool softener standpoint, is that whole um, that ancient wise saying that says all all mush, no push. Um, from a constipation standpoint, you don't really get that peristaltic uh, activity like you would from an osmotic or a stimulant laxative, and so uh, typically, especially for a chronic condition like IBS with constipation, I, I would say it's 
it's probably not the best option. Um, you know, if you're in a pinch and you don't have a lot of different options around you and that's available, then sure, I'm sure it'd be okay for an acute situation. I just don't think it's going to be all that effective chronically. I imagine it'd be tossed in with kind of when we were talking about the bulk forming agents. Yeah. It probably wouldn't get a level of recommendation yeah. from the guidelines. Um, and there's questions as to how effective it is in general. Yeah. So there you go. That's my recommendation based on literally zero research. Um, that's my that's my thoughts on it. So good thought. Thanks for asking the question. I appreciate it. So two D six. Check him out. Check him out on YouTube. Check him out. Yeah, that's an awesome name. I wonder how did you get that cool name, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So thank you guys so much. I hope that was helpful. Sorry we were a little off topic with our nonsense today. Um, but you know, every once in a while. Um, if you have any questions for us, make sure you email us. Our emails will be in the show notes. You can send us a text. Uh, you can reach us on any of the social media platforms. And if you are a free CE unlimited member or a gold or platinum member, make sure that uh, you go to their website, freece.com, and uh, take the post-activity test. Get your one-hour credit for your you South Carolina pharmacist licensing uh, renewals coming up. It's time. It is. I should really uh, start looking at doing that i probably should too yeah so make sure you claim your credit get your license renewed keep your job it's important and uh we'll catch you guys in the next episode have a good night